listener production. So when Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the West decided that instead of joining the fight on the ground, they would take up financial weapons, imposing tough economic sanctions on Russia. Russia is feeling the shock of Western sanctions. New sanctions on its central bank. Russians now lining up at banks only to find ATMs out of cash. The White House announced new sanctions against members of the Russian elite and their companies. International flights now grounded. So that's news reporting from The Time. Um, Six months on, it's turned out that Russia's oil and gas resources have meant that the sanctions are to some extent a double-edged sword. Oil prices surged, gas has been cut off from Europe as they head into winter, and the Russian ruble is stronger than it was before the invasion. So have the sanctions backfired, or were they a crucial tailwind in Ukraine's defence of its territory? And how have the sanctions affected us here in Australia? We're going to discuss the real impact of the sanctions six months on. That is our briefing topic in this episode. First to today's headlines, it is Thursday the 15th of September and I'm joined by royal expert Rihanna Patrick. Yeah, look, some people who are experts may take offence at that. (laughs) The first mourners are walking past the Queen's coffin now that she's lying in state in London's Westminster Hall. People have already queued for three kilometres and face a 30-hour wait to see the Queen. The hall will be open day and night until 6.30am on Monday, the day of the funeral. Yeah, the government in the UK are expecting 750,000 people to line up, but only about 400,000 will get through. The Queen was brought in a procession from Buckingham Palace to Westminster. Guns were fired in Hyde Park and Big Ben told every minute and the crowds applauded as the Queen passed by. This is also where we saw that Harry was in a civilian suit rather than a military suit, unlike um, basically the rest of his relatives, except for Prince Andrew. What do you make of that, Rihanna? Yeah, well, that was one of the caveats of him leaving the royal family in a way, was that he would be stepping down from all of those posts. So uh, not surprising at all. Mm. I've seen a lot of articles about it. I thought, oh, well, it's not a big deal, is it? But then when you see it and he, he really stands out, you see that, you know, It is kind of a big deal in a way. We got some interesting um, feedback to yesterday's episode. Here's um, what Antoinette said about all the royal coverage and particularly the focus on Meghan Markle. I just think they can't handle that. Megan, you know, she's a woman who doesn't know her place. She's from Hollywood. She's a woman of colour. There are so many reasons why there's just way, way too much criticism, even from Aussie commentators. I think everyone needs to back the hell off. Mm, And so lots of you... um, Really agreed with Antoinette. Here's some comments we got. Um, The pod this morning had me cheering. The coverage of Megan has been horrendous. It must be so hard to step out knowing that your every breath will be reported on and criticised. Thank you, guys. Someone else says 100% agree with Antoinette on Megan Markle. Uh, Another listener says, I'm with Antoinette. Well over the coverage. It all feels like it falls quickly into tabloids. What do you make of that, Rihanna? Yeah, I think that's uh, fair because I think um, every move she's ever made has been scrutinised and even more so with the impending memorial service. I mean, to be honest, I'm a little bit overseeing that coverage as well. All right, moving on. A National Cabinet has agreed to extend pandemic leave payments. While the government requires uh, mandated isolation, the government has a responsibility to provide support Uh, during that period. 
That's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese there. And those payments were due to expire at the end of the month. But instead, the government is limiting how often the payments can be claimed, capping them at three payments over six months. So the payment will stay at a maximum of $540 for people required to isolate for five days. So, I mean, it would come in handy, but it's not a huge amount of money. I mean, for a full-time five days of work, that wouldn't even be minimum wage. Um, National Cabinet will talk about ending the mandatory isolation when it meets again in two weeks' time, which I imagine would also mean the end of this payment. The controversial Saudi-backed Live Golf Tournament could be coming to Australia. Greg Norman is set to speak with ministers here that could see the event hosted in New South Wales as early as April next year. Yeah, so the New South Wales Sports Minister, Alistair Henskins, has told The Guardian he is open to hosting the series. Now, it's a very interesting tournament, the Live Tournament. It's been shaking up the golf world. Um, It's attracted some big stars from the traditional PGA Tour, who are now barred from playing in the PGA Tour. It's also controversial because it's backed by Saudi Arabian money. Yeah, and one of the most high-profile defectors to the live is Australian golfer Cameron Smith, who recently won the British Open and also switched to the Rebel Tournament for $140 million. Yeah, it'd be um, interesting to see it here. I think there'd be a big backlash to that tournament being hosted in Australia. Yeah, I was interested to see that Queensland had mentioned that they have a good relationship with PGA Australia, um, and in no doubt that's probably because they're hosting the Australian PGA Championship in mid to late November. I mean, I think it's one of those things, isn't it? Like, all sport, if the big names are there, people are always going to want to see what the big names are doing. And do you work two jobs? If so, you're part of a growing number of people. More than 900,000 Australians are now working at least two jobs. And the ABS data says that's 7% of the workforce, which is a record. Yeah, at the same time, there's been further confirmation of the worker shortage and the number of unfilled jobs has doubled from where it was pre-pandemic. And Australia has 480,000 job vacancies advertised. People most likely to have two jobs working in the arts and recreation sectors, followed by admin and support services and then hospitality, education and healthcare. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how we can solve this worker shortage. It's just affecting so many industries, um, just cannot get enough workers. I think overseas workers are starting to come back finally, so that pressure might ease, but it's really having a lot of impact in a lot of different areas. Who done it? We could find out which individual board members voted in favour of rate hikes, holding the Reserve Bank to account under potential reforms. Yeah, so this idea is part of an issues paper that's been released from the review that's going into the RBA right now. So the panel will consider whether it should follow other central banks around the globe and publish the voting history of the board members. Um, This is all coming into sharp focus because the governor of the Reserve Bank said interest rates wouldn't go up or would be unlikely to go up until 2024. And in just the last four months, they've gone from 0.1% to 2.35% and are likely to keep going up as well. So that'll be pretty intense for those Reserve Bank board members. I guess it might take some of the heat off the governor though, Rihanna Wright, because everyone just looks at him at the moment when they get angry about interest rates. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you are a board member, would that change how you voted? Yeah. Knowing that the public knows? That's a really interesting question. Or the public could know? Mm. Yeah. You'd like to think that it wouldn't, right? You'd like to think that they're making the right decision based on the economic data, um, you know, not by the reception they might get to that or the popularity that they they may lose (laughs) for that decision.
All right, Rihanna, we'll catch you tomorrow. Antoinette is about to join me again as we look at the real impact of the sanctions on Russia. So when Russia invaded Ukraine at the end of February, the West were pretty quick in imposing what you'd have to call very strong economic sanctions, Antoinette. Yep, it was pretty swift and a whole bunch of countries jumped on board. Australia, US, Canada, Europe, Japan. And they did a bunch of things like they targeted wealthy individuals, banks, businesses, state-owned enterprises. And they froze the international assets of Russian politicians, officials and oligarchs. Um, A number of big Russian banks were removed from the SWIFT international payment system. Look at a big one, Tom, was restricting exports from Russia, which is one of the world's largest suppliers of oil and gas. And then, of course, corporations like Macca's and Ikea, Visa and Apple shut up shop. Mm. So Russia's economy was predicted to really struggle under the weight of these sanctions, but it hasn't collapsed. And on the other side of things, Europe's facing a gas crisis. Oil Mm. prices went up around the world, adding to the inflation problem. So that's why we're asking in this episode, who's feeling the most pain and what have been the real impact of the sanctions? David Uren is an economic analyst. He works at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. So David, the overall calculation on the impact of the sanctions is very complex, but let's start by looking at the cost the sanctions have had on Western economies. What are the main ways these sanctions have cost us? Is it mostly the surge in oil prices and the energy shortfall in Europe? Yeah, oil prices have gone up pretty dramatically, as everybody um, who goes to a petrol pump knows, and petrol prices will go up further once the um, excise tax concessions are removed, I think, at the end of this month. Mm. So it's really an energy price issue that has um, obviously had some effects on inflation more generally. Transport costs go up, it pushes up the price of all commodities. And that's really been a a phenomenon in Australia and around the world. That was already happening though. How much of those, I guess, the surging oil prices and the flow on effects can we put down to the conflict um, between Russia and Ukraine and in particular the sanctions? Energy supplies were tight before the war in Ukraine began in February this year. However, Russia is a significant provider of oil to the world. Russia accounts for about 18% of oil and a similar share of thermal coal. It's the world's biggest provider of gas. So sanctions are really only just now starting to be applied to oil and coal. The financial sanctions have meant that people are much more wary about transacting with Russia in any way whatsoever. So Russian fossil fuel exports are down by about um, 20% in volume. So that loss of volume, which is a reflection of sanctions, that is certainly a factor that's um, creating uh, tight markets and leading to the um, very high prices. And so what about the energy situation in Europe heading into winter? How is that playing out and um, how much pain are those European countries feeling? Uh, It varies a bit from country to country, but 
the information that's out at the moment is that the Europeans are getting to a level of gas emergency supplies that will tide them over the winter. Some gas-intensive companies have seen reports, BASF, the German chemical company, is declaring it's going to have to shut down unless it can get greater supplies of gas. So the gas shortages are causing problems in industry and uh, they're causing high prices across the board. But the thought that Putin will be able to, um, if you like, freeze the Europeans into submission, that seems not to be the case. You mentioned freezing into submission. I mean, that was the West's idea with these sanctions. But how are things going for Russia? Because so far the economic indicators would show that it's not going too badly. Russia is experiencing some fairly significant pain in in some sectors. And I also think that more broadly over the long term, the Russian economy is suffering really severe damage. But to the short term, um, things like uh, motor vehicle production is down by about 63%. Manufacture of things like washing machines and fridges is down 40 50%. Any kind of sector that depends on any sort of Western technology, production levels are down dramatically. But it's not only in the more technologically intensive areas. I was curious to see that things like cigarette productions down by about 15%. Production of um, knitted fabrics is down by about 15, 20%. And one suspects that these things do depend on some level of imported basic materials. And even if exports to Russia of some materials are not particularly banned in some countries. For example, neither China nor India are abiding by these sanctions explicitly. The fact that you've got to transact with Russia and you've got to deal in currency with with Russia means that many businesses are just very loath to continue dealing with it. And this is having an effect across the board beyond the um, official sanctions. The biggest long-term effect, though, um, on Russia will be that it's essentially destroyed its most important market. Half of Russia's exports used to go to Europe and uh, Europeans will never again allow themselves to get into a position where Russia can inflict economic sabotage on them by choking gas supplies as it has been doing over the, the last few months. So Russia will never regain that very important market for it. And I think that that will be a a real long-term source of damage. So, David, the big news this week is that Ukrainian forces have uh, claimed that they've taken back 6,000 square kilometres of territory in the eastern part of the country in recent weeks. So it appears that momentum is swinging in their direction at this stage of the conflict. So let's talk about the upsides of the sanctions. It's been an incredible fight by the Ukraine forces and the Russian invasion has been reduced to a fight over a fifth of the country in the east, um, which is a, a far cry from their initial attempts to, you know, go straight for the capital of Kiev. So how much have the sanctions helped, do you think, in the conflict? 
There have been suggestions that Russia has been making much less use of missiles, that it's been using more in artillery shells, and the suggestion is that this reflects their difficulty in in getting microchips that are needed for, for missile guidance. It's clear that Russia is having difficulty in obtaining the technology that it used to source mainly from Europe and from the West. And it would seem likely that that is impairing its ability to match the kind of technology that is being provided to the Ukraine by the Western countries. I mean, one of the things that's worth thinking about is, well, what is the aim of the sanctions? On the one hand, it's partly to degrade Russia's warfighting ability and I, mean, I think wars are a mix of high technology and low technology, and Russia has very vast reserves of the low technology. But the other point that sanctions try to do is to sap the morale of the civilian population, sap the morale of, of the elites that are supporting the government. And, you know, I'm not sure to what extent they're successful in doing that. I think that around the world it's been shown in many cases that um, sanctions can in fact increase the support of the government from the the local population and elites because uh, it's seen as a national attack and certainly that's how Putin is is casting it. So David, I'm I'm interested, are there any winners unexpected winners thanks to the sanctions on Russia? Because like Australia has a a similar export portfolio. So are we in any way having a burst of prosperity because of these Um, sanctions? We're we're certainly not being hurt by it. Australia uh, was the world's biggest exporter of LNG. LNG prices have have gone through the roof. Coal prices have gone through the roof. Uh, Anyone involved in in the mining and export of of either thermal or metallurgical coal is having an absolute bonanza at the moment. So, yeah, individually there are companies that are doing well as a result of the um, the shortages and, you know, across the totality of Australia's export portfolio, I think Australia is is doing very well. So could that inadvertently sort of help cushion us or protect us from the global downturn? Yeah, it could. I mean, it depends just how that downturn plays out. Australia's last growth figures were really very good. You know, there's lots of reason to be concerned about the global outlook, more to do with um, rising interest rates than um, rising energy prices, but both can be depressive effects. So, David, overall, do you think the sanctions have backfired? No, I don't. I think that sanctions will always impose some pain on the country that is inflicting them. Otherwise, they're not going to be you know, of any worth. But I should note that to date, the shortage of energy is, well, particularly the gas shortage is the result of Russia squeezing its supplies to the West rather than the West banning Russian gas. And things are about to change. And this is um, an area where Western action could backfire. The West is trying to impose maximum prices on Russian oil. And it's saying that any ships that load Russian oil at above 
a yet-to-be-specified discount price, will not be able to obtain insurance. Now, most of the shipping industry worldwide depends upon the London insurance market or European insurers. So this is a very significant threat. Russia has said, well, its response will be to stop shipping oil altogether. So it could yet be that we see oil prices rising a lot further. People are talking about the possibility of two or $300 a barrel in oil. Well, it hasn't happened yet and it may not happen, but it's certainly a danger over the months ahead as the West starts to really try to curtail Russia's revenue from hydrocarbons. So that was David Uran. Uh, he's an economic analyst and commentator with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. So, Tom, like there are never winners in war, mm. but I found it pretty interesting that in an economic sense, Australia has benefited. And while those indicators so far show that Russia isn't hurting too badly, I think it's also important to note that they've stopped releasing a lot of economic indicators so as to, I'd imagine, not give too much away. I mean, some of those figures he gave on the, on the massive decrease in production in so many parts of their economy show that actually it is hurting them a lot. I think the surprising element for me is just the impact on the countries that impose the sanctions. Mm. And so when you hear that long list of sanctions being imposed on Russia, you just sort of imagine the impact on them. But I think I was probably a bit naive in, in underestimating, you know, the fact that it would come, you know, with some pain on our side as well. But as, as that great question you asked pointed out, for Australia, because we also have lots of natural resources, it hasn't been such a bad thing. It's, it's more those other countries, particularly Europe, who are feeling it. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're looking into some pretty harsh criticism about the way the ARIA Music Awards work. We're going to actually speak to the boss of ARIA. Listener.